Well, it's very exciting to be here. I had no idea what this was about before I came. The, I would say if there's a theme, common theme of most of the talks this morning, it's, it's what does it take to be a success in life? You've heard that over and over again. I, by the way, know one of, one of Warren Hellman's daughters, and, and not the one that he talked about, but in fact, I admire her very much as well. I, the work that I did to win the Nobel Prize, which I did in collaboration with two professors, David Lee and Bob Richardson, they were my thesis advisors at Cornell University, was, was done a little over eight years after I graduated from high school. And it's sort of remarkable because if, if you had told me at that time that I was going to win a Nobel Prize at any age in my life, the, of course I would not have believed it at all. Uh, in fact, although I spent most of my life up till graduation uh, puttering around in the laboratory in the basement, I was also the editor of my high school newspaper. And when it came time to choosing a university, uh, actually in this case it was between Stanford and Caltech, the only two places I applied, I was lucky that I actually got into either one. I got into both. I, I uh, just thought that if I went to Stanford, I would go into journalism. I was editor of my high school newspaper, and I was infatuated with the power and the responsibility of the press to mold public opinion. I would say that I would have been a very miserable journalist. Luckily, I had an older brother at Stanford, uh, and in order not to be compared with his academic record for four more years, I chose to go to Caltech, where I did not have the opportunity of going into journalism. Caltech was very, very difficult and challenging for me. Uh, we had calculus exams every week, and I failed the first one of those exams. I, my background wasn't that good. My SAT scores were well below the average of my class. And I decided that I would only get six hours of sleep a night and do nothing but eat and study the rest of the time. And I did okay. I mean, I, I wasn't exceptional, but I was well above what Caltech had predicted my grade point average would be. They did that back in those days. My sophomore year, I decided life was worth more, and I would get seven hours of sleep a night and do nothing but eat and study the rest of the time, and I did quite a bit better. Uh, I think one of the most important things you learn in, in, at, at college is your own limits. Uh, and in fact, all of the most important things you learn in college are about yourself, not about anything that you study. But to learn these things, you have to put out. You have to find what your limits are, you have to find what it is that you're interested in, and you have to find what you're good at. Uh, and students that go to universities and feel that the most important thing is to find a place on the social pecking order are throwing away an opportunity at an education. And I will tell you that right away. Anyway, I, I eventually, I decided I would go into physics, as I said, but, but uh, when meeting with a representative of physics, he said that, in fact, physics was very difficult, and that if I wasn't near the top of my class, I shouldn't go into it. Uh, and that he had his best ideas at 3 in the morning, which, of course, is true for me as well. I decided to go into electrical engineering, and I took one course in electrical engineering and found that the questions that they were answering were not the questions that I was asking, and decided that I would prefer being a, frust uh, a mediocre physicist than a frustrated engineer, so I changed my major back to physics. When I went to Cornell University, I had spent most of my time up to that point in research working in an astrophysics group. 
But I recognized, in fact, all it was very exciting and very intellectually stimulating. It wasn't emotionally satisfying. I wanted to be a participant in what I did rather than an observer. And if you go into astrophysics, you don't have the opportunity of influencing in any way those objects uh, that you're studying that are so far away. So I was very lucky that, that, in fact, I was assigned to teach with David Lee, who was the head of the uh, uh, low temperature laboratory at Cornell, and I would say one of the largest and most active low temperature laboratories in the country. And of course, it was as a result of that that I was given the opportunities of doing the work that I did. For my PhD thesis, David had told me that I was to measure some property of solid helium-3 through its nuclear ordering transition, which no one had ever seen before. I didn't know how to do that, but uh, in the beginning of my, well, at the end of my fourth year, uh, we received a preprint from our chief competitor in this business, and he'd seen something that looked very exciting. So I decided I would reproduce this experiment and see where it would go from there. However, when we cooled down and tried to, to reproduce his results, we found out that, that the exciting part of the results were an artifact of his thermometry, which wasn't working right. That's always been one of the hardest things in low temperature physics. And so this experiment was dragging on for a long time, and I was getting results that didn't look very exciting. The job market was exceedingly bad back in those days, and I wasn't sure how I was going to get a job based on any of this stuff. Uh, at that point, uh, probably when, when things looked bleakest, two other graduate students came up and said that I had dominated the, the group's only high magnetic field NMR magnet and that I should give it to them and allow them to do an experiment. And I couldn't argue the point, so I gave up the magnet. But I, back in these days, these apparatuses were, were not very reliable, so I decided to keep my apparatus cold in the event that their experiment failed, then I would get the magnet back. But while I was waiting for them, I decided that I would do another experiment myself. And what could I do without a thermometer, because I needed this NMR magnet for thermometry. Well, I decided I would try to see how cold this cooling device, which I'd built, uh, would, would, would get, uh, based on simply looking at the melting pressure itself as a function of time. I should say that my colleagues felt this was a foolish experiment. And it was, in, in fact, the first of these experiments that we discovered the signature that, that ended up being uh, the first evidence for superfluidity in helium-3. Now let me say that there, are, I think, are a few morals to this story. One is that I was doing an experiment that didn't look very interesting. And if, in fact, uh, I suppose if I hadn't lost this NMR magnet, I probably would have never done anything very interesting for my PhD thesis, and I wouldn't be here before you today. So there was certainly some serendipity there. But rather than taking this opportunity of the loss of the magnet to close up this experiment and take a much needed rest and think about other things, in fact, I, I decided to try to do something very different with this apparatus. And during my physics career, there have been four discoveries of one sort or another that I've made, and, and half of them have been made uh, when, in fact, I didn't understand what was going on, so I did something which which I didn't know what the outcome would be. And I think we need to do more physics like that. It used to be called curiosity-driven research. And I think it results in the bulk of, of major discoveries in science today, curiosity-driven research. It's a bad word. It's supposed to be applied stuff now. 
Well, anyway, I think if you're thinking about what kind of careers, what you need to do is find something that you find intellectually stimulating, because if you don't, you'll find that your work is a bore and that you are a drudge in doing it. And then you need to find something which is emotionally satisfying. And by that, first of all, I mean something that you're good at, but in addition, something that satisfies other emotional needs, a need that your work have value, value to you and value to society and to mankind in general. And you probably will have to investigate lots of different things before you find what that is, unless you're very, very lucky. They say that in science, you can be good or you can be lucky, but in fact, good people make their own luck. Thank you. My name is Alexa Fields. I'm from Los Angeles, California, and I would like to ask you, um, compared to solids and liquids, what is a superfluid like? Well, superfluid helium is a particular kind of superfluid, but, but all of these things are what are called macroscopic quantum states, where virtually all of the atoms in the material are described by a single quantum mechanical wave function, just like you would describe a single electron around the nucleus of an atom. So it's a very big macroscopic thing, but it's quantum mechanical. It's, it's really unusual. Uh, we normally think that superfluids exhibit zero viscosity, and that's the thing that's most interesting about them, that if you get them flowing, in fact, say around a donut-shaped cavity, that they would continue to do that for as long as they remain cold. But they have lots of other interesting properties having to do with the fact that there is this one macroscopic quantum state. Superfluid helium-3 is, in fact, a neutral analog to superconductivity, and, uh, but it's a rather bold generalization of that. And I think that the reason that we've received the Nobel Prize for that work is the tremendous amount that we've learned about these macroscopic quantum states, in particular uh, BCS states in general, as a result of, 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 of studies of this. So there's no practical applications. The, 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 Things only exist within a few thousandths of a degree above absolute zero, but, but the, the beauty of the physics is really exquisite. Thank you. Very much. Thank you.